Thank you, Tommy. Now that's the reading of Scripture. Absolutely. Absolutely. From the heart. From the heart. Well, Genesis, the genesis of an idea is the beginning of an idea. And we're starting now to unfold the story about life from God's view. And we start in the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. Now, so far we're in Genesis 6, but so far we've seen several things. We're starting at the beginning. God creates. And the creation is a wow. (laughs) It's a universe far flung. It's a galaxy, not one galaxy, but our scientists have counted 170 million galaxies. They think there's maybe 2 trillion galaxies. That God created the whole universe. He created every tree, every animal, every microscopic organism, every little plant. God creates. God is transcendent. He's overall, he creates. We also learn that God is eminent. God walks with man. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. God came to Cain after he had sinned and talked about his heart. God is not only transcendent, he's imminent. He's close by. He's near. First five chapters, we also learn about man. Man, he is the highest of earth's creations. The objects of God's affection. And later on, we'll learn that he's also worthy of God's great sacrifice. We learn about the goodness of man. But we also learn that man can walk away from his creator. That's what we've learned so far, Genesis 1 to 5. We come to Genesis 6 and watch out. Because Genesis 1 to 2 is all of creation. For the story of Noah to the flood, it takes four chapters. It's an epic story of what is happening in the earth and what God is about ready to do. Let's look in Genesis chapter 6. The story that changes everything. And as we look at this story of Noah, we find out three things. One, the heart of God. The heart of God, he's creator, he's powerful, but he's also engaged, loving, and patient. We learn about the heart of man, exceedingly wicked. And we learn that one man can change the world. Let's start with looking at the heart of man. Something has gone very wrong in this story. If you look back at verse chapter 4, verse 26, it says, At that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. People followed after God. They loved God. They called upon him. We read of the genealogies of the legacy of people who walked with God. But something happens when we get to chapter 6, verse 1. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters were born to them. Sons of God saw that daughters were attractive. They took as their wives as they choose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall abide, shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. So something happens to the heart of man here. And we see several things. First, there's something to do with marriage and family chaos. That's the first call out. Something has gone wrong with marriage and family. 
What God has designed is now off the rails. It's not working. God is entertaining the idea of wiping out man for something that he's done. Well, what went wrong with marriage and family? Well, it's right there in verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. They took any wife that they chose. Now, if you look at this and down, it's going to talk about the Nephilim and giants in the land. You're thinking this is a wild story. And it certainly is. We have a study called hermeneutics, which is the study of rules of interpretation of any kind of literature and of the scriptures too. And we abide by those rules of interpretation so we can figure things out. One of those is context. We always look at the context of what it is because this story has so many different interpretations out there now. What is the context? Context is so important when you study scripture. You look before and you look after. You never just pull a verse out. It's like the guy who said, God speak to me and he thumbed through the New Testament and he put his finger down and it said, Jesus hung him or Judas hung himself. But I didn't a good verse. So he thumbs through again. He puts his finger down. It says, go thou and do likewise. <laughs> right? That, that's sometimes what we do. We're just taking things out of context. We looked at context. We also look at interpret scripture by scripture. That's another one of the rules. Interpret scripture by scripture. If one scripture isn't, is hard to understand, we look for another scripture. We do that with, um, between grace and works, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not as a result of works. It is the gift of God. Faith comes through grace alone. But then we look at James one and it talks about what was good is your faith. If you have no works and you go, wait a minute, those both can't be true. But as you study the context, you realize that faith is by grace alone, but it is evidenced by works. If you don't have works, you got to check and see, hey, where is that faith? So we always interpret scripture by scripture. And then we always interpret um, different types of literature. There's different types of literature in the scripture. There's the historical, the narrative, the gospels in the Old Testament. It's a story. It doesn't give the whole story, but it gives bits and pieces. Then there's poetry. And you know, poetry, it's very allegorical. The hand of God is upon me. Well, you don't see it, right? But the hand of God is upon me. It's poetry. It's, it's allegorical in a real way. It's there, but yet it's, it's, it's just allegorical. And then we also have prophecy, ap- apocalyptic uh, literature as well. We're talking about Revelation and in Daniel, we're the beast with 45 eyes. And we think, wait a minute, that's, we got to figure out what that means. There's different type of literature. And we have it in modern English as well. We have fiction, we have sci-fi, we have instruction manuals, we have biographies. We all read them very differently. You don't read the DMV driving rules as sci-fi. Although some may be doing that. And you, you don't dr- dr- read horror as a true narrative. Otherwise, you'd never step outside your house. You interpret different literature. And so that's what we have here. In verse 2, what are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? And one of the interpretations, even with these rules of interpretation, it can be different. One of the rules of, or one of the interpretations, that these, are, that these are the sons of Seth, the sons of God, who married the daughters of men, the daughters of Cain. Because in the context, it's talking about Sain's line is cursed and Seth's line is blessed. And so as you read in the context, you go, okay, 
That's what it is. They, they, they were told later on not to marry the Canaanites. And so you have something that God has told them not to do. They've done and marriage and family has completely gone off the rails. They're demanding marriage, right? They took any that they chose. It says they only looked on the outward appearance, wrong things to do in marriage. I see Don and Alex Flecky here who head up our, our marriage ministries, and they would say that's absolutely wrong. You always look at the heart of a person as you pursue marriage. So that's, that's one thing. They, that added to the family's dividing. Faith became divided. Families disintegrated. And that could have been part of the big sin that God wanted to wipe out all man from the earth. There's another interpretation, and that talks about the sons of God being fallen angels. Because many times in the scripture, the sons of God is interpreted as angels. So that it was angels, these fallen angels came, they reproduced with women on earth, and they formed another kind of these giants that are, that are Nephilim. And so people look at that and go, wow, that's a, that's, wow, is that, is that, is that really what it says? Well, as you look in other scripture, it may be in Second Peter chapter 2, it talks about God did not spare the angels when they sinned, and then he brought about the flood. Hmm, is that referring to that? Or Jude verse 6 says, angels did not keep their positions of authority. They came down and God punished them. So there's several ways we, we can look at that. But did God just punish them because of the fall, or did they really have children with women on earth? Well, it's so complicated that we're dedicating an evening. It's our Beyond series on Wednesday evenings where we get to talk about deeper things. And we've got some great guys that are going to unpack this. In our teaching meeting this past week, it got very heated as we talked about this. I'd never seen a teaching meeting so heated. All in love, of course. But which one is true? What is accurate? So the exact interpretation may not be clear, but the point is clear. Marriage is sacred. Marriage is given to build community and fill the longing that we have for each other. Marriage is given to protect children. Marriage is so sacred that it represents a picture of Christ and the church. And the rendition of marriage in Noah's day looked nothing like what God intended. It was off the rails. Whatever was happening was not God's ideal. That's the first sin in the heart of man. The second one is in verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of men came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Well, it's hard to tell if the Nephilim were the kids of this reunion or if the Nephilim were there before and the Nephilim were there afterwards. The Nephilim is just the Hebrew word that it means just fallen ones. Or it's called giants later when the spies went into the land and they saw the people of Canaan and they were just like, whoa, we were like grasshoppers to them. They were called the Nephilim. Were they actual giants? Were they just bigger? We're not sure. We just call them the Nephilim. But what happened was not only marriage off the rails, but there was an abundance of corrupt and arrogant men. That's what that verse says. The Nephilim were on the earth. They came, into, they came when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, bore children to them. 
It says they were mighty men. That word doesn't necessarily mean they were good, mighty men. It means they were strong men. They were warriors. They were fierce. They were ruthless. And it also says they were men of renown. They were known. They felt their presence. Their presence was felt. They left a huge footprint. So this was the other thing that was wrong. There was warriors, gifted, charismatic, wicked, violent, arrogant men who were leading. And God said, this is not what I want. Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, hate pride, hate arrogance. And that was among people in the hearts of people. God said, I want to wipe you all out. Pride, pride, the feeling of I don't need anyone. I can do it myself. Pride cometh before a fall. We all have it. We can't see it because it's in us. We can see it in other people. I've heard a story this week on the final hole of the 1961 Masters Tournament. That's golf for the uninitiated. (laughs) Arnold Palmer wrote, he said, I had a one-stroke lead and I had just hit a very satisfying tee shot. I felt I was in great shape. As I approached the ball on the 18th, I saw an old friend standing at the edge of the gallery. He motioned over, stuck out his hand and said, congratulations. I took his hand and shook it. But as soon as I did, I knew I had lost my focus. On my next two shots, I hit the ball into the sand and then put it over the edge of the green. I missed a putt. I lost the Masters. You don't forget a mistake like that. You just learn from it and become determined that you will never do it again. And I haven't in 30 years since. He went on to win seven major championships. Pride. I got this. I got it. (laughs) Oops, I don't. I don't. Happens to the nicest guys, right? Arnold Palmer. We can all fall into pride. Satan can all trip us up into pride. I heard the statement from a clever salesman who closed hundreds of sales with this line. Let me show you something several of your neighbors said you couldn't afford. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'll show you I can afford that. (laughs) Right? Appealing to pride. The sin of pride. Arrogance was among men. And then the third sin in verses or chapter six, verse five. Great evil in the hearts of men. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The outwardness was wickedness. Wickedness, violence, terror, arrogance. But it talks about it comes from the heart. The intention of the thoughts of his heart. Sin looks like behavioral problem, but it's inside of us. The heart of man, sin is internal. Sin is pervasive. Sin is continual. It's within us and it continues to bubble up and it bubbled up in that day. God said there was sin, vile sin in the land. I remember this quote and then I heard this week that Chuck Swindoll still has this on his desk. Sin will take you further than you want to go. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin was in the land. And God said, I'm going to wipe you out completely. The heart of man is broken. It's not the body. The body can't do anything on its own. It's not the will. 
If the will ruled me, I would still be on that great diet. (laughs) It's the heart. It's the soul. It's a control center that needs transformation. And in the days of Noah, evil spread rapidly, dominated humanity. Unless we start thinking, boy, they really deserved it. Just read Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to 35. And you talk about the evil of the day in that day. And it reads like the evil of this day. God saw the heart of man was evil continually. Well, then we get to God's response, which is a lot better part of the sermon, right? Starts in verse 5. The Lord saw. I love those three words. The Lord saw. The heart of God is engaged in loving and patient. God is watching. God saw it happening. God is near. God is close. I remember several years ago, I, my daughter and her friend wanted to go to the OC uh, Festival, Fair, Orange County Fair. And so they were in their young teens. And so they said, Dad, just drop us off. We've got it. <laughs> and so I dropped them off, and then I followed 100 yards behind them for three hours. They never knew it. Until she hears a sermon, she won't know it. Because <laughs> I love her, and she wasn't going to get into any trouble. God is like that. He created us. We're his children, and God is watching. In verse 3, another part of God's heart, it says, I will not abide in man forever. The word is really, I'm not going to protect man forever. I've been protecting man. I'm going to give him 120 days or 120 years. That's how long it's going to take Noah to build the boat. So I'm protecting them for 120 years, and then the flood is coming. And then they have time to repent if they want. In verse 6, it goes on the heart of God. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The regret there is not just an admission of a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. But it's a change of his mind so that he can continue to be holy and just and righteous. So he made man to connect with him. Man is not connecting with him. He is so grieved. He regrets that this has happened. He's not changing his mind. He's not, didn't make a mistake. He is just so sorry it's happened. So grieved and hurt when one of our children take a wrong turn. It kills us, and it hurts God. We see judgment. God says, I'm going to judge you. In 2 Peter 3.20, it says, judge the ungodly but protected Noah. He judged them. That's the heart of God. The heart of God is engaged, loving, and patient, but it's also judges. So the people were blind at the time, right? They thought God was not watching, or they thought They were getting away with it. Or they thought God was too nice to punish them. Things that we all believe, people around us believe all the time. God really isn't watching. I'm not that bad. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. All have sinned. If you're all, you're here, you've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we will be judged. 
But the gift of God is eternal life. And this gift comes through Noah at at that time and comes through Jesus. So God is patient. God is loving. But God also judges. When I do memorials, and I do quite a few these days, there's a great story usually of the person and how they lived life, and they were wonderful. And the end of most memorials, you think, man, that person was a saint. They did no wrong. But we're celebrating their life, and that's appropriate. But the true story at a memorial is that the person was born in sin, and they needed a Savior. And most often in the memorials we do here, they have found a Savior. And they live their life by grace, in faith, in God. And that's the real story of life. So that's God's response. Loving, patient. He's waiting, but it's going to happen. The third point of this passage is the power one person can make in the world. In verse 8. But Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here it is, God is watching again. He's not only watching the evil, he's watching for a good man. And he finds Noah. And Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In 529, the passage we started reading, it says his parents named him Comfort. Noah's grace or comfort because they had a premonition, probably from God, that out of the ground the Lord had cursed this son will bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. God was watching. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace, which is contrary to merit. What he had was not of his own, but God gave to him. Something we don't deserve. Grace that can be found in the darkest hours, the darkest times. Grace is the only means of escape. And later on, not only did Noah have grace... But if we peek into verse 9, where Darren's going to go next week, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, walked with God. In the midst of all this sin, in the midst of God's love, there's one man who finds favor. And the rest of the story is going to be completed later. (laughs) Let's talk about three take-homes we can have. First take-home, God is watching. He will judge. God is watching, he will judge. Don't mistake God's patience for weakness or lack of resolve. God doesn't wink at sin. He gives time to respond. In the days of Noah, and Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 to 39, as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And it goes on to talk about what it was like in the days of Noah from Jesus' perspective, who knew all, and what it was like in those days and what it's going to be like in the future. And there were six things. The world completely unprepared for a coming judgment. The world never thinking a judgment will be coming. Secondly, there's widespread moral perversion and breakdown of the family. That's what Jesus said. That's That's what Noah saw. Breakdown of the family. For a shocking failure of leaders we thought we could trust. That was in the days of Noah. A rejection of God's authority. The days of Noah. Believers standing alone like Noah against the world. The days of Noah. God is watching. He will judge. 
We often don't think about that. We often don't want to preach that. But he will judge. The second take-home is God is watching. He gives grace. Ah, boy, that first point was hard. (laughs) He gives grace. God did not eliminate all his creation. God gave a way out. God gives grace. In October 14th, 1987, Jessica McClure, 18 months old, fell into a well in her aunt's backyard in Midland, Texas. You remember the story now. An eight-inch well casing she fell into. She was trapped. Water was rising. She couldn't help herself 18 months. If someone didn't act, she was going to die. For hours, workers drilled an adjacent hole as a nation watched on live TV. We heard her singing Winnie the Pooh to herself. Finally, 45 hours later, she was pulled to safety to the great relief of a nation. Jessica is now married with kids and has no recollection of the event. (laughs) That's the story of humanity. That's the story of Noah. Born in sin, trapped, helpless, can't help yourself. If someone doesn't act, you're going to die. And someone came. His name was Jesus. He dug down to where you're sitting right now. And he offers to set you free. Will you say yes? Most of you have heard his voice and have said yes. God offers grace. We don't have to be in the judgment. We can choose his grace. The last take home is one person can change the world. One person can change the world. Righteous, blameless, walked with God. Noah was called. He was given grace. He lived obediently. And men and women throughout history have been the one person who stood up. And we have them throughout history and we have them in our midst. I think of Wilberforce, the politician in England, who gave his all so that slavery would be abolished. One man changed the trajectory for so many people. I think of Ed Murphy. He was a professor of mine, a quiet missions professor. He had been a missionary to Argentina in his younger days. And he said he had led one young man to the Lord and helped disciple him. One man? Yeah. He led Luis Palau to the Lord. And discipled him. One guy leaving the U.S., going there, changed the trajectory of millions. I think of Mordecai Ham. You don't know his name. He was an evangelist early in the century, last century. He'd preach. He did tent revivals. He had a tent. He'd go around. It was dusty. It was hard. One day, a young boy came up, a young teen, tall, lanky, came up, gave his heart to Christ. His name was Billy. You know him as Billy Graham. Mordecai Ham was faithful to preach that night. And the trajectory of millions was changed. Heard stories of Billy Graham used to practice preaching with little stones in his mouth so that he could articulate well. He not only was changed by God's grace, but prepared himself so that he could be used by God. Oh, we could go on. Marianne Mooney, woman in our church. Some of you remember her. She would witness to everything, even if it stood still, if it stood still. She would tell stories as a carpet cleaner came into her house 
And she was after him about Jesus can remove the dirt from the carpet of your heart. She could turn any conversation into Jesus. One day, some ladies were having a Bible study in her house and a car came by and broke down right outside her house. A lady named Joyce. Before cell phones, Joyce had said, I got to go in to call. So she went in, knocked on the door. Can I use your phone? Yes, you can use my phone. We're having a Bible study. She sat down. She came to know the Lord of all things. And that's Joyce White. You may know her. Her family has a great legacy in our church. And she led many Bible studies. Because one woman, Marianne Mooney, couldn't shut up about Jesus. The trajectory of many were changed. Well, we have our missionaries, Crystal and Denny Rivera, went out several years ago. Crystal was in our young adults. She was a nurse, single. She went on a short-term mission to Romania. And um, her heart was so touched that she just had to do something for the Roma and unreached people in Romania. She came back. She got another job. She worked two jobs, sent the money, opened a clinic, hired a Romanian doctor, and kept the clinic going. Eventually, she wanted to go back a few years ago to be a part of it. And the agency said, well, you need to be married. So she called up an old friend who was a high school friend and said, Denny, can we get married? And so they got married. Crystal, there's no one like Crystal. And then they said, well, before you go, you should really buy a house here so that you have something to come back to. So she continued her two jobs, bought a house in Whittier, rented it out, and came to me and says, I'm ready to go. She and Denny went and have had an incredible two years in Romania reaching people for Christ. One woman who's just so dogged, I'm going to do this, and she has done it. They're back right now. Her father just died. She just came back. She's also having a baby in a few weeks. So things are really chaotic in her life. One person, the trajectory of many are changed. Let me just do one more story. Quang and Janice. So they were a a couple in our church, um, Vietnamese by background. Quang had escaped from Vietnam. Some of you know him. He, he outran bullets as the story went. Ended up on a deserted beach. Almost died. Someone picked him up. He gets to the U.S. He marries Janice. They um, start a business here in Bray. He had a machine shop um, doing very well. And about 12 years ago, God said to Quang, I need you to go back to Vietnam. So Quang did. He came and said, hey, he was part of all ages, stages, the fellowship. I'm going back to Vietnam, a place I never, ever wanted to return. And this is the vision God has given me. It's crazy. The guy said, I want one million kids for Jesus. One million. Is that a big dream? I didn't believe him. Quang went back. He started Awana programs, training junior hires, high schoolers all through Vietnam to do these Awana programs telling kids about Jesus. There's several hundred thousand Awana groups in Vietnam. His 10 years were up last year. He came home. He said, God told me 10 years, I'm home. He still oversees them. But we believe there's over a million kids that have come to know Christ. Because one guy, or Marianne Mooney, one woman, sitting in this room, heard from God, And said, I can make a difference. And God wants to make a difference in each one of us. The power of one can change the world. Let's pray together. Oh God, we need you. We need you. 
Father, as I look up, I know men and women sitting here, and I know some of them that have hard hearts. They have not yet trusted you. Father, open, open their eyes. Father, I know there's men and women here living in sin, thinking that you don't see them or you don't judge them. Soften their hearts, Father. Lead them, lead them home. Lord, I know there's men and women that you are calling to stand up and make a difference in their world. Give them the courage to walk with you, to say yes, to be ready for when the bell rings, that their life's in order, that they're ready to say yes and change the world. Father, we thank you that as we gather, we are the body of Christ and you do incredible work in our hearts for your glory. So continue that as we worship you. I'm going to ask the elders and some of the elders and staff to come forward. And as we sing two more songs, feel free to come up, to hug one of these men or women, to pray with them, ask for prayer, to get things right with God. Last week, a young man, 20 years old, came up, gave his heart to Christ. In fact, he came up and talked, sat back down, then came up after and gave his heart to Christ. Took him two two conversations. God's waiting. Elders, staff, come on up. Let's sing and worship together.